This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. No, we have to talk about this. It's totally natural for you to be curious about sex. Hi, this is Jen from Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. And today we're doing a spotlight on sex. And we're going to go back to kind of the original newscast type of segment because we've heard feedback from some of our listeners that that was really helpful. And to be able to separate out some ideas of what's going on in our world and what's going on around us. And then we're also going to be introducing some new segments coming up. So we're excited about that and we'll talk about that. And this is also going to allow us to be able to talk more in depth about certain topics. Some of these news type situations that we're talking about, we'll be able to go more into depth and explore them and be more specific about a lot of these things. How are you doing today, Lynn? Well, I'm a little jet lagged after <clears throat> I just came back from... Asia from Japan, and we're going to be talking somewhat later today about gender issues related to Japan. But um, I'm looking forward to this. A lot happened. You leave the U.S. for a short period of time, and there's a lot of uh, events that occur. Well, it's been a busy week in terms of the sex in the news, I would say. I mean, it's kind of in everything around us. That's a big part of what we talk about. But certainly looking at the headlines these past uh weeks, there's been a lot going on. So I know I'm a little behind on this, but I think it's important to talk about because there's so much that has come up. So I'm just going to kind of go through the list and I think we're going to give a little bit of feedback. But these are things that we can go into more depth. So if you're listening and you want us to talk about something in particular, please give us that feedback and let us know. So one of the big things that I know a lot of my friends have been talking about is the passing of Hugh Hefner. So he's well known for being the founder of Playboy. And it's very interesting because what I've noticed is that what comes up a lot is talking about the roles that he's had in the sexual revolution. And I think for my perspective, certainly the way I look at it is I do think that he brought it more into the household. He brought it more into a mainstream type of situation at the same time the way in which he did it was very very confining for women i couldn't agree more you know i remember gloria steinem she wrote a very famous article where she um, worked partly as a playboy bunny right and uh you know that in itself illustrated a lot of the difficulties but even some of my friends from high school went and worked in the clubs and were involved in that. And it was really a very difficult and challenging time, I think, for women, how to take that on. And Hefner himself was looked upon as really a leader by a lot of men in the country. Right. And I think that's very striking, too, that the way men and women are looking at it, although there are also a lot of women who are saying, well, these women, you know, they chose to do these things. It was their role. So I think it brings up a lot of 
the sentiments that come up in other areas. But because he's so well known by so many people, I think it's a great way to be able to talk about a lot of the themes that come up just in other types of conversation. And also see the progress that's been made in that area, because there are, uh, shall we say, places of entertainment that are similar to that today, where women have similar roles. We think of Hooters, the restaurant, yeah, other things. But um, again, this was one of the first and introduced this idea, or at least refined it in this way, because there's been a long historical period of this type of establishment, shall we say. <laughs> right. I think another thing that's very interesting is, at least from what I understand, before the Playboy clubs, being a bachelor was a very negative thing. It was looked at as sort of, why are you not able to get a wife? You're not successful in life. And I think one of the things that the Playboy clubs did is they really changed that image of the bachelor and it became something that was desirable. And it wasn't only that. There were a lot of magazines. There was Esquire and Playboy being published really in the 60s that really emphasized, um, you know, male sexuality. Yeah. They had a lot of articles about it and a real opening in that area. And that was even before a lot of the feminist ideas were introduced. Right. And that brings up an interesting point, too, which is that um, Hugh Hefner definitely knew that feminism and his idea of the boys and girls roles or men and women's roles were not in line you know he, the way he the way he set up the playboy club was very much an objectification of women and when he was interviewed he talked about how women were objects and so that is fundamentally against the feminist idea but that was the culture at the time and Maybe the fact that he pointed to it so directly, at least acknowledged that that's how women were seen. You know, it's not that women are objects, but the culture saw them that way. I think at least calling it was something. You know, that's an important contribution. Yeah, so I think as you can see here, you know, we can obviously talk so much more about this, but I think this is a perfect example of different things. There's so much going on in their world. There's so many things that you can talk about and have these conversations about. So another thing I want to bring up is I actually read this in a local paper, so I don't know if it was talked about on a more nationwide scale, but there was a former East Palo Alto teacher that was convicted of four counts of committing sexual acts on a 15-year-old. And this was really huge because in this case, it was a female teacher and it was the abuse of a boy. And so I think the fact that from a legal standpoint, something was done here, that's really powerful. And that's a, a change that's really been taking place, I'd say, the last five years. These cases have been coming forward. I've been involved with a lot of them. Right. And uh, the acknowledgement of that boys can be abused by sexual contact, by in individuals, men or women, mm -hmm. who have power over them really is so important. And the losses they can suffer with respect to their sexuality are really, really important. And the courts need to acknowledge that, but our culture needs to acknowledge that too. I, I definitely agree. And I think what for me was so powerful about it too, is it really fights the stigma, which we've talked about in our episode on the abuse of boys and men, but is really the idea that the female teacher 
can abuse a boy and that it is abuse and that it's unwanted because I think for some people at least there still really exists this idea that you know if you have a quote-unquote hot teacher then it's such a wonderful thing that this is happening to you and from listening to the boys we know from our background that that really is not the case and it really is experienced as abuse and I think it's a misconception you know, that having a powerful female or older female take control of your sexuality and kind of supposedly introduce you to sex right. is a good experience. It isn't really for most boys. And they describe feeling overwhelmed, overpowered, actually similar to many of the feelings that girls who are abused by individuals in power experience. Yeah. And I think what's so fascinating about that, too, is how a lot of these boys deal with it, though, because it does seem to very much challenge their sense of masculinity. And so they often behave in ways where they feel they have to overly assert their masculinity. And I think that really messes with their own process of figuring out who they are, and they become much more rigid, and that can be damaging in the long run. And it's great, as you point out, Jennifer, that the courts can see this and acknowledge it. They finally are, yeah. and I think it's a huge step forward. Yeah. So another thing that was happening is Stanford has started selling Plan B from vending machines, which is interesting to me, I guess, that it's so controversial. Well, we're really during a time when uh, uh, Republicans are working hard to take birth control, and let alone Plan B, but right. birth control out of the health care system. So I think any organization that can support female health care, it's really, really important. So I think this is great, and I think and hope other universities follow suit with this. Yeah. So I think that's really powerful, too. I think... Again, it's kind of about agency. I think it brings up a lot of the fears that come up around sex, though. I've heard and just been looking at commentary on it to see how the general public is feeling. And it's been really interesting because some people take it in like such a strange direction that for me, I'm like, I never would have even thought about that. You know, I read this one comment where somebody was talking about how like now guys can just go stock up on plan B and they can like put them in people's drinks and I just thought that was so interesting that they took it in that direction. Well, it, it makes people afraid. It does. These changes make people afraid. And I, I think that's part of what we're going to see with this. People don't understand it. They feel like it should be controlled by authorities. And right. It's a very different way of really looking at it. Well, that's a big part, too, is a lot of people are saying, like, well, shouldn't doctors be the one prescribing these? And they're over the counter. So it's very interesting that I think some of it is misinformation. I think there's a lot of fear that underlies it. And that's why it's so important to be able to talk about things like this. And you think about it, you know, active uh, and available in colleges. It right. raises the question of whether or not it should be available in high schools and other, you know, public institutions, too. And uh, I'm sure there would be resistance to that. Oh, I can guarantee <laughs> you there would be resistance to that if there's already resistance in colleges. So I think another interesting thing that I read that was really powerful and that got me and my husband talking was an article in Harper's Bazaar. Let me make sure I get the woman's name right. Um, her name is, I believe, Gemma Hartley. And it was about 
emotional labor. And the article was called Women Are Not Nags, We're Just Fed Up or something like that. I don't have the article in front of me. So I think obviously that was another kind of clickbaity title. But it brings up a really interesting idea of emotional labor. And I think what's been so powerful about her article, and I think we'll do a full session on one of these because it's such a major component, but it really talks about emotional labor in a way that people are looking at their own behavior and they're being able to understand it. Because I think what comes up is that when you're in a relationship, the way you relate to this other person and then bringing up this information, it often puts, the in this case, the man on the defensive. And I see that a lot with therapy too, where maybe I'm simply reflecting something a wife is saying or I'm reflecting something a husband is saying, but it lands differently because I'm not a part of that unit. And so I think in talking about emotional labor, because she is this third person, women are sharing these articles with their husbands and boyfriends, and they're able to listen to what she's saying. It was a very good article, having read it, and uh, just for those of us who want to look for it, I'm looking for a title. I've got the article here, though I don't want to rustle too many papers. We've learned that with this whole thing. But um, it just, the title is... uh, uh, women aren't nags, we're just sped up. And um, the aspect, you know, it's been discussed in male-female re- relationships for generations, it's really that women are often in the position of trying to get men to do certain things, and uh, that is an unfortunate situation. And I think it's probably reversal is true too that men are trying to get women to do certain things too though the culture may support that more which is really a different thing but i think it's a very good article to read because it it deals with things like household chores which i think is one of the biggest problems worldwide and from my recent travels you know it's really a major issue in the world today for women how do they get their partners to really cooperate and invest equal or at least partial time in the household? And it is a good article because you often do feel like a nag or you're put in the position of being a nag when you try to establish equality in that area. Well, I think it's also, it brings up the idea that it's very hard to see what is often invisible. And by bringing up that something is invisible and that is being done, I thought one thing that she does so well is she explains the reaction. So it's not that women haven't tried to bring up these things. It's often that when it is brought up, it elicits a defensive response. You know, it's perceived as a criticism. It's perceived as, you know, you're not doing enough. And so then they come back with, oh, but I do all these things. I do this and I do that. And And so it leaves both people not really understanding or feeling heard. And so I think she does such a great job of highlighting that she's not saying her husband's a bad person. She's not, you know, she's not a lot of the common beliefs about why somebody is bringing these things up. She highlights, though, like, I'm trying to help you understand that there are all these things going on behind the scenes and to get you to to see it in the same way. 
uh, I thought it was an excellent article because it also talked some about male response. She was trying right. to ferret out his response. She revealed what he did, which is really important. And I think men and women around this issue of household chores are also coming from very different positions. They don't see the other side to it. Right. And I think that's what's so powerful, too, is she's not really looking to blame her husband. She's trying to see, like, this is so interesting. What is going on? Let me paint this picture. And I think so many women and men read it and go, wow, oh, that's me. And I think what's great, too, is that they see that in other ways. Her husband is a wonderful husband. And I think a lot of men actually read it thinking like, oh, I'm one of the good ones. But then they read it and they go, oh, oh, there's even more that that's there. And I think that has sparked some really powerful conversations. And that's that's really the idea behind talking about things, highlighting what's going on, because emotional labor is by no means a new concept. But I think the fact that she wrote it in this way, it's made it really approachable for people. I don't think people use the term emotional labor till probably the last five years, but this process could have come straight out of the 60s. The whole the vignette she's talking about, uh, which is about sharing some household activity, you know, it's really important, I think, uh, with uh, couples. And it's really where the rubber hits the road kind of thing is really how do you share these things and have each party be heard and feel that they're contributing. And I think it's it helped me too, because when working with couples, this type of thing comes up so often, but being able to explain and highlight and, and understand what each person's perspective is in this, because it's such a roundabout, you know, where what she brings up so well is that some of the emotional labor is in having to have this discussion over and over or, or trying to get somebody to see something itself is the emotional labor. And so then it often gets weighed like, well, do I say it or do I just hold it in? And I think I see a lot of really perceived to be angry wives. And a lot of it is because they're holding all this in because the idea of having to explain to their husband who might have this reaction and then they have to deal with the emotional fallout of that reaction. So I think being able to see that even not talking about it is part of the whole system. I think that's really powerful. One of the questions I've always had about this area, Jennifer, and had a lot of impact in my own life because I've been in relationships sharing household tasks with men, and it is, is always a struggle in terms of how it works out. And I've heard countless thousands of men and women talk about it. I you know I think first off you have to acknowledge that women worldwide spend between 15 to 20 hours more in household task area than men do that's the overall statistic now it doesn't apply to every relationship so there are men that contribute equally and I think that's important to acknowledge but there's that process and that frame and it does lead to a lot of angry women and what to do about that. I've always thought if you could have an observer in a household for a week charting exactly what's going on and then giving an assessment, but that discounts that there's different perspectives to it. But really, how do you address these factors? 
Yeah. I mean, I think I've never thought of that idea, but I think it would, it would be very revealing. I think it would show a lot. And I think it, it brings up to the other side of it that I've seen is I think sometimes men are treated like they're really dumb. And that that is really a problem too, because I've seen a lot of women who take on these tasks upon themselves because they assume that the men won't know how to do it or that they're not going to have the resources to figure it out. And so then, you know, they feel the burden, but they're really also not giving their husbands a chance. And so that's another pattern that I see. So I don't want to just say, you know, it's all men, it's all women. But certainly I think being able to have actual conversations and discussions and have people feel understood. And I think that is really the goal. And that's where this article is really helpful because this uh, partnership is really talking about it. And though we're talking about straight couples here, I want to say that I've seen a lot of couples, you know, gay couples, men, men, women, women, and they're having the same struggles. Oh, yeah. And uh, the role problems are there. But overall, I think there's that cultural adherent for women. And that's something to keep in mind, you know, that we've really got to keep looking at that. Yeah. So so speaking along those lines, not the same thing, but I think it also brings up this idea of fragile masculinity, that our concept of masculinity is actually very fragile and is boosted often by a definition of not female. And so what happened was this guy, what is his name? Owen Benjamin, I guess he's a comedian. He got dropped by University of Connecticut after some comments that he made about the use of hormone blockers on trans youth. And the way that he presented it was it got more and more negative, but he was framing it as if children, as in, you know, two or three year olds were going to be forced to use these hormone blockers. And obviously that's not what happens and that's not the discussion and the children are not deciding whether or not they're using hormone blockers right but what i thought was so fascinating was his response because instead of understanding or even looking at what he was doing he felt attacked and he quickly went from the entitled to victim flip and I think that's such a fragile masculinity type thing, which we can definitely talk about more in another segment. But that was what was so fascinating to me. So he flips and he turns it and he says, you know, I just lost this amount of money and it's because the University of Connecticut dropped me for saying that, you know, I made a non-controversial comment about how hormone blockers should not be used on children and now I'm being dropped and I'm not going to be able to feed my family and like screw UConn basically. And it's just, I mean, you're laughing, but you know, that's the thing. It's, it's not that uncommon, but it seems almost mind boggling. This quick flip to, oh, and that was the, the funny part was at the end. And he was like, and this is not about, this is not about money. This is about principles or something. But the first thing he said was that he's losing money. So it, it was just for me, a perfect little snippet of that fragile masculinity in, in action. Well, I think it, we, <laughs> Either men or women can have a response where they flip rapidly, you know, to victim after having been and failing to see that they've been aggressive around something that's inappropriate. You know, here with children, there's a lot coming out around 
transgender children now and how we respond to them. National Geographic ran just a great, uh, uh, you know, issue on this whole area. And many people speak out about it. They joke about it without a lot of intelligence in that area. And that's an example of this. And then he kind of throws it back and he's the victim. But I do think it, it, it can be men or women engaged in that. When men do it, I think men are more conscious at this point in time about their masculinity. They're more able to use that as a defense, too. You know, my masculinity is threatened. This is that. You know, you're attacking it. So we're getting a lot more of this response. But I think there are effectively more attacks on the negative aspects of masculinity. So I think there's some truth to all of that, too. Well, I agree. I mean, I I definitely don't think this is just a male thing. I think the way that it presents, though, with males in particular, because of how we've defined masculinity, makes it more of a challenge. And because masculinity has been defined in such a rigid way, and often defined, as I said before, in, you know, what is not female? Okay, that's masculine. And as this concept of what is female is more fluid and becomes more open, I think that's what makes it so fragile because they're not able to define themselves in the same way. Well, I really agree there. And I think masculinity over the last, say, 20, 30 years is becoming more limited. So you have a definition that's narrow, whereas for women, it's really expanding. And having a narrow definition, I think, pushes people more often to the victim stance when they're pushed out of their narrow frame. Exactly. And I think that's what we see with this man, and we see it with a lot of men. And back to the other discussion about splitting chores, I think men feel like, I've got such a narrow frame here, you know, I can't, I don't have a lawn to mow anymore. I don't have these things. What am I going to do? And you really see that. And they flip to being the victim. You're attacking me, that kind of thing. Right. And so I think that's powerful too. So we're almost done. I know there's a lot, as I said, there's a lot that's been going on. But I mean, so two other really big ones, women in Saudi, Saudi Arabia, finally are permitted to drive. And this is amazing to me because it's taken so long, but also because being able to drive is so tied to mobility, independence, having a sense of agency. And these things all are really powerful for pushing towards a sense of equality. Yeah, I read a uh, uh, a book written by a women do- woman doctor in Saudi Arabia, and she would dress up as a man to be able to go and drive because there were major uh, legal consequences if oh, you yeah. did this. You'd be jailed. So um, it really has ex- is going to expand the life of women. I'm going to be interested to see what happens with this. Yeah, I'm interested to track it. And then talking about, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but I think it's becoming more and more in the headlines, is accusations of powerful men on sexual harassment. So in this case, I'm talking about the situation with Harvey Weinstein, where at first he was being accused of sexual harassment. And as more and more women are coming out and stepping up, they're finding now there are accusations of him raping women. Um, Yes. And we've seen this with Bill Cosby, for example, and certainly, uh, you know, many other men in powerful positions 
I think most interesting has been people's comments about this. Yes. Um, because, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, it's come up that he supported several powerful Democrats, Obama and Clinton, for example, and what to do about that. And it's clear now that uh, sexual harassment runs outside uh, and all around party lines. So I think that's very important to really acknowledge that. And that also powerful people have to be addressed to do these behaviors. Well, I think that they have to be addressed. And I think also being able to talk about why does it take so long? Because from all the things I'm reading, there are certain people in Hollywood where it was just sort of known that that's how he was. And yet he was able to continue operating this way for decades. And a lot of it has to do with what happens when women do come forward. There's this assumption always, or almost always, I would say, where she's she's confronted as if she's lying or it's assumed that she has an ulterior motive is a better way of saying it i think so why is she coming out about this now why didn't she come out earlier you know and i think whether women come out about something at that moment or later the underlying assumption is frequently what is the ulterior motive well i i couldn't agree with you more around this issue because i think uh, there is a, a major transition going on in this whole area of harassment where more women are speaking out and voices are being heard. And it's really uncovering how really massive this uh, problem is. In, in universities where I've worked, there are harassers. They're well-known. They're protected. And the university protects them. And the industry, the film industry, protected this man. And uh, this is clear kind of across the board, and it ties into one other event this week. You know, I was traveling, but I, I read uh, uh, the editorial out of the uh, London Times on uh, sexual abuse of children and uh, in France, really. And the issue that they're talking about there is the sexual abuse of an 11-year-old girl. And they're beginning to acknowledge that this is abuse even though they don't really have a definition for that if the child is kind of cajoled into sexuality and it, it isn't violent. So these are major issues that are being confronted throughout the world is really how to handle these voices that have not been heard. And I think it speaks to the importance of having a system that supports people who do come forward. Because as we've talked about numerous times, the number of people who lie about that thing is so low in comparison to the amount of people who are coming forward and speaking truthfully. And so we really need to have a system that supports that. Because right now, very much the, the protection goes to the person who is often the aggressor. That is true in in many legal systems, whether it's France or the United States. And uh, those who are are accused have all these protections. So it's really about multiple voices coming forward and establishing a system where the victims can confront accusers without being re-victimized. There's a lot of parts to this that have to work better. Yeah. So this is just an example of some of the things that are going on. So please give us feedback if you like this format. I think it will be helpful going forward. We give a little bit of a talk about each thing, 
but then we'll also have the larger segments where we can dive into some of these in more depth. Sounds great, Jennifer. And I hope we hear back from our listeners. Sounds great. Thanks, Lynn. Bye-bye. Come on. Let's talk about sex.